The title for my lecture, hopefully sermon, at some point tonight was given to me several months ago, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace. I have an introduction, and then I have a section where we're going to go to the scriptures and try to argue my position, and then I'm going to try to show you from our confession and the 1693 Baptist Catechism that it reflects the teaching of Scripture on the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Then I have some final thoughts. First of all, I do want to thank the ARPA General Assembly Planning Committee for entrusting me with this stewardship. Um, I have not taken it lightly. I'm not taking it lightly tonight. I think this issue is vitally important for our churches, for the Reformed and Evangelical community at large in our country and across the world. And I hope by the time I'm finished you agree with me on that issue. I'm one that believes my subject, the Lord's Supper as means of grace, is the most difficult subject of all the subjects assigned. I mean, who, what preacher here didn't want to preach what Tom Lyon was preaching last night? It was like, sorry brother, it was a no-brainer. <laughs> If you read the debates at the time of the Reformation, you won't find a lot of argument about preaching as means of grace, at least among the Protestants. You'll find a lot of ink spilled over the issue of the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why I think this is the most difficult subject is because at the time of the Reformation, more ink was spilled on the nature of the Lord's Supper than was over justification sola fide. So because of that... Uh, we learned several things. The Lord's Supper was, at least once, vitally important to the church and the theologians of the church. And I think it still should be. We also learned that the Lord's Supper is fertile ground for disagreement among otherwise good men. I think it was when Luther finally concluded he could not agree with Zwingli on this issue that he said something like, Zwingli is of another geist, he's of, of another spirit. And some of you have heard probably John Gershner um, agonizing over that split that took place over the nature of the presence of Christ in the supper or whether or not he is and how that goes. So the Reformation debates on this issue lead me to believe that I have been given a most and I think the most difficult assignment. But the second reason, uh, a little closer to at least my own experiences, Second reason why this is difficult is because of the tendency in all of us to allow presuppositions to cloud our judgment. There is a tendency in everyone to bring preconceived notions into discussions which often shield us from hearing what someone else is arguing for or which often promote in us uh, the ability to interpret what they're saying uh, in a way that they don't intend. Uh, arguing for point A necessarily means I'm denying B. I found that to be the case in my own experience. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was converted to Christ through the ministry of a Bible church. And my own experience has been that my experience often pre prejudices me against certain aspects of the discussion concerning the nature of the Lord's Supper, whether or not it's a, mean, it's a means of grace and how it is a means of grace. In my own experience, I have found that I did not understand what others were saying because I had already made up my mind. 
though I did not adequately study the issue. I'm not claiming any of you are guilty of that ever. I was guilty of that on this issue. It's made it difficult. These prejudices have made it difficult for me to to uh, understand what, for instance, what Calvin meant. I, I could understand what he said because I could read. But understanding what he meant, you often need to give him time and read in the, some background material and understand what was and wasn't going on behind the scenes. So these are two reasons I think my topic is, uh, has created a hill that seems, at least to me sometimes, to be insurmountable. Um, but I trust that when the Lord's word is opened, I know that the Lord is there and when it's proclaimed accurately, he's going to speak to us and make obscure things clear. Let me tell you a little about what I think my assignment is not. And then I'll tell you what I think my I hope my assignment is. And if it isn't, I'm doing it anyway. And by the way, the first schedule of events I got said I started at eight and ended at nine. So I pre-programmed myself to end at nine o'clock, just so you know. What my assignment is not. It is not, necess- it is not necessarily to prove to you that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, though I hope to do that. The title for my talk was given to me, and it assumes that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Also, it was given to me by confessional Reformed Baptist men and their Confessional and catechetical documents explicitly affirm the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. So it's not to prove to you, though I hope to do that, then what is my assignment? I take it that my assignment is to show you not that, but how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's one thing to say that it's a means of grace and then just go on and preach. It's another thing to show you how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. My answer to that is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace because of what the Holy Spirit does in the souls of believers when local churches partake of the Lord's Supper. The Spirit enhances present communion between the exalted Redeemer and His pilgrim people on the earth. Or, we could put it this way, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace at which Christ is present by His divine nature and during which the Holy Spirit nourishes the souls of believers with the benefits wrought for us in Christ's humanity which is now glorified and in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's what I want to try to show you. Not that, but how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Faith, the Holy Spirit, redemptive blessings that were wrought for us when Christ was on the earth, now He's in heaven. How do they get from the right hand of the Father, from the exalted Redeemer, to our souls? They get to our souls through means. One of the means is the Lord's Supper. I struggled a bit as far as uh, methodology, because in one sense it's a curse to get this title several months before you have to preach it, because I'm way over-prepared. And it's in one sense, they say you got ten days. That would have been better. Um, but I thought, what, how do I present the material? Do I, do I read the confession, maybe a few questions and answers in the catechism, and then show you uh, the Bible? Or do I do it the opposite? I decided to go to the only infallible, 
authority that we have, and that is the Holy Scriptures first. So I want to go to two types of texts. Uh, the first text, type of text, the first text is 1 Corinthians 10.16. I think that is the most important, if, uh, and important, if not the most important text on the nature of the supper as means of grace. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then the second type of text I'm going to go to after we look at 1 Corinthians 10, primarily verse 16. We'll look at it in its context. Then we'll look at texts which speak about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relation to our exalted Redeemer in bringing mediatorial redemptive benefits to the souls of believers. In history, in space and time on the earth, the Lord Jesus became incarnate. The Son of God became incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived, He died, He rose from the dead, He ascended. In Him is all fullness of messianic plenitude. He has everything we need to be saved. But it's, it's in Him. It's at the right hand of the Father. How does it come to us? We'll look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relation to that. So, we're going to look at the biblical data first. Then we're going to look at the confessional and catechetical formulation of the Lord's Supper as means of grace, which I believe accurately reflects the teaching of Scripture, and then some final thoughts. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, I want to read verses 14 through 22. I think it's a section all by itself in a larger section and an argument in Paul's letter. But let me read verses 14 through 22 and then uh, set its context and, and we'll start looking at it. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. This is very important. He's dealing with idolatry in the passage. The breaking of the second commandment. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And the assumed answer is, well, of course it is. And notice what he does not say. He does not say, is the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing or a, you know, a communion of the saints. Something horizontal. It's a sharing, whatever that is, and we've got to look at what that is, or a fellowship of the body, blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? The answer is, of course it is. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he. Are we? Let me remind you of verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. So he's dealing with idolatry. This is an important, I think the most important text in the New Testament in terms of the nature of the supper. Let me try to set the context. You know 1 Corinthians well enough that Paul's dealing with several church problems. One of them being idolatry. Specifically, some 
Corinthian believers thought they were free to continue participating in pagan sacrificial meals. I think that's what's going on in this section. This is not an indifferent matter. There are indifferent matters in the context of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But this is not one of the indifferent matters. A fleeing idolatry isn't a take it or leave it thing. Now, buying meat sacrificed to idols and eating it at somebody's house is a different issue. That's a take it or leave it thing. This is flee idolatry. So whatever this communion, this fellowship, this sharing with demons is, it's not just a horizontal thing. You're going to offend one of the brothers. It's something vertical that we are not to do. Paul strongly disagreed with them that they could continue in these pagan uh, sacrificial meals, flee from idolatry. And he ends up, in his argument, he ends up shedding light on the nature of the Lord's Supper in verse 16 and verse 17. The important words here for our purposes are, first of all, the word koinonia. You've heard that word a lot. It's used in many places in the New Testament, especially by Paul. And uh, it has various shades of meanings or nuances depending on the context in which it is used. We don't go to a dictionary and koinonia says fellowship. And then, so we just assume, well, fellowship means I, you and I are together in a place where we're sharing something together. It, it, it certainly can and does mean that sometimes. But it doesn't always mean that. So we have to dig into the text itself, the context, and maybe other similar contexts, and ask Paul first, and then other places, what does koinonia mean? What does sharing mean? What does participate mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16? And we also need to ask the question, okay, once we've determined that, what does this sharing or a communion in the blood of Christ mean and sharing in the body of Christ mean? So we'll look at those. First of all, the word koinonia, and then try to put it together with those two um, prepositional phrases, in the body and in the blood of Christ. Again, the word koinonia can simply be translated... Uh, sharing, participation, communion. I think those are three, uh, three or four different uh, versions uh, translated that way. It's used in 1 Corinthians 1.9, by the way, which I think can shed a little light. If you want to turn back there, I can just read the text. It says, God is faithful through whom we, there's the horizontal, through whom, or you, plural, were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think the emphasis there is less on the horizontal and more on the vertical. Into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the exalted Lord. I think it's obviously vertical there, and I have at least one commentator that agrees with me, Anthony Thistleton, in his 9,000-page commentary, 450-pound commentary on 1 Corinthians 1.9. He says this, he argues for a more vertical element in Koinonia here in 1 Corinthians 1.9 and he translates it communal participation. Commenting on the verse, he says, communal participation may seem to make heavy weather of, a, of the Greek Koinonia, which is usually translated fellowship. But the use of fellowship in church circles may convey an impression quite foreign to Paul's distinctive emphasis. He means Paul's distinctive emphasis in 1 Corinthians 1.9. 
He does not refer to a society or a group of like-minded people, such as the Greco-Roman groups. Certain specific, certain specific uses of the word may have this meaning, and he cites Romans 15.27, but not this type of passage. Normally in Paul, the word means communal participation in that of which all participants are shareholders or are accorded a common share. It is not simply or primarily the experience of being together as Christians which is shared, but the status of being in Christ and of being shareholders in a sonship derived from the sonship of Christ. Just as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13, 13, means participating in the sharing out of the Spirit, which then secondarily gives rise to fellowship experience within a community, so the fellowship of his son means communal participation in the sonship of Jesus Christ. So going back to chapter 1, verse 9, I think Paul uses koinonia, fellowship there, in a vertical uh, sense, something that you, plural, have experienced. If you're a believer, you've been ushered in through faith to fellowship or communion with Christ. You're connected to the exalted Redeemer through faith. Now, of 1 Corinthians 10.16, because that's the text we're looking at, just trying to set some Pauline context for interpreting this, um, Thistleton goes on and argues that in 1 Corinthians 10.16, koinonia has a more vertical and theological priority of emphasis over the horizontal and social. The Lord's Supper, this is me now, certainly has horizontal and social aspects to it. I don't want to deny that. But I want to affirm that 1 Corinthians 10.16, though that's in the background, the primary emphasis here is not horizontal, but vertical in light of Paul's argument against idolatry. He's dealing with its nature in terms of its vertical aspect. And one of the reasons we know that is because in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's not something that we do to each other or share in common with each other. It's something that has um, negative connotations in Paul's mind. Namely, you're somehow, someway, you're coming into contact with the effects of demons in your life when you do this sort of thing. Commit idolatry. Thistleton says it means that this communion here means that we have an act of communion our common share in the life, death, resurrection, and presence of Jesus Christ as Lord. One other commentator notes that in this text, Paul is expounding the word is, esten, in the words of institution, this is my body. So he's saying Paul is expounding it. You know, Jesus spoke words. Jesus acted and Jesus spoke while he was on the earth. The writer's of the New Testament then are the divine interpreters of the redemptive historical acts and words of Christ. So we look at Paul and Paul's the quintessential theologian, I think, of the New Testament. And, uh, he, but he's under divine inspiration so it's God interpreting the acts and words of God the Son that were previously, uh, previously done and spoken. Now God is interpreting them and applying them in the life of the local church. He, God is interpreting his own acts and words through the Apostle. So he notes that in this text, Paul is expounding the word is in the words of institution, the sense of participation, koinonia. The cup and the bread 
are not bare symbols in some Zwinglian sense, he says. He further observes, whatever objections may be raised against the term real presence, it expresses what Paul wants to say. So, koinonia, I think that gives us a flavor of of its meaning, but we have to connect it to the prepositional phrases that Paul adds to it there, because that's when we'll see its, I think, its fuller meaning. What about these phrases uh, that come after koinonia in verse 16? Is not the cup of blessing which which we bless a sharing, a communion? Now, my New American Standard says, in the blood of Christ. I think the old ASV 1901 says of the blood and of the body. And the King James and the New King James translate these uh, genitives more faithful to what a genitive normally is translated into. However they translate, in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ, of the body of blood of Christ, of the body of Christ. However it translates, Um, They could be what grammarians call the genitive of source. The genitive would translate of. If they are genitives of source, we could read it this way. Present communion derived from or present communion dependent upon the body and blood of Christ. Again, uh, Thistleton quotes somebody else who I don't know, Thornton, and he says this. A genitive following the word koinonia expresses that, that of which one partakes. The object shared. In this case, the objects shared are Christ's blood and Christ's body. Now, some of you are saying, this reminds me of a Beatles song, a magical mystery tour. I didn't say that. I'm just quoting what other people mean, what, what other people say. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says koinonia in 1 Corinthians 10.16 means participation in the body and blood of Christ and thus union with the exalted Christ. Because it's not, it's something that's present. It's a present connection between the exalted Redeemer and where I'm going to take this, the benefits wrought out by him by the shedding of his blood and the crushing of his body while he was on the earth. If Paul is talking about a present communion with the blood and body of Christ, and if Christ is no longer dead, and he wasn't, he was risen and exalted, then the communion he is referring to is communion with the exalted Christ now. This is present communion with the living and exalted Lord of glory. I think that's what he's talking about there. And in case uh, some of the pastors here especially are going, well, Anthony Thistleton, is, is, he's not a Baptist, so we can't trust him. I got a Baptist. Jeffrey B. Wilson. The fact that Paul here refers to the sharing of the cup and the bread as a communion of the blood and body of Christ proves that the Lord's Supper is something more than a memorial meal. It is a memorial meal, but it's something more than a memorial meal. For the believer shares in all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice as he partakes of the tokens by which it is called, but not reenacted. The bread and wine are vehicles of the presence of Christ. Partaking of bread and wine is union or sharing with the heavenly Christ. And I'll just draw this conclusion. We know this much for sure. These are or might be at least Eucharistic genitives of real presence. 
So I think what's happening here is not a communal thing on the horizontal level. It's a communal thing on the vertical level with the present exalted Savior and Redeemer of God's people. Somehow, some way, when we take the Lord's Supper, benefits procured by the shedding of His blood and the crushing of His body, which is now raised from the dead and exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, somehow, some way, the benefits won for us come to our souls through the means of the Supper. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10.18, there's some awkward language here. Look at the nation Israel, Paul says, an illustration. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So one of the commentators says those who eat the sacrifices appropriate the reality or influence which the altar of sacrifice represents or conveys. I'll take that one. Verse 20, sharers in demons. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. What does he mean by that? Participating in pagan sacrificial meals opens one up to the influence of demons in one's life. It involves some sort of contact with demons and is thus a form of idolatry. John Gill, the Apostle's view in this instance and his argument upon it is that is this, that if believers by eating the bread and drinking the wine in the Lord's Supper spiritually partake of Christ, of His body and of His blood, and have communion with Him, then such who do this at these demonic tables are somehow, some way communing with them and thus Paul tells them to avoid this. This is idolatry. So here's the point I'm trying to make from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. From... That bread and wine are signs which signify present participation or present communion in the present benefits procured by Christ's body and blood. This is why uh, someone like Benjamin Keach could say there's a mystical conveyance or communication of all Christ's blessed merits to our souls through faith held forth hereby and in a glorious manner received in the right participation of the Lord's Supper. It's because he took that view of 1 Corinthians 10. Or a man named Spurgeon, at this table Jesus feeds us with his body and blood. The benefits of his body and blood. So the koinonia in the blood and koinonia in the body of Christ brings spiritual nourishment to souls. It is present participation in the present benefits of his death for those who properly partake. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Which leads us to a question and the second set of texts. How do the benefits of his death become present? How do the benefits of his death become present to our souls? So I have two texts now which speak about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relation to our exalted Redeemer in bringing mediatorial redemptive benefits to the souls of believers. How do redemptive benefits get from the right hand of the Father into the souls of God's people? They get there by faith brought to us by the only Redeemer between the exalted, the only mediator between the exalted Redeemer and God's elect, the Holy Spirit. 
You remember Jesus when he was on the earth. He said, I, I, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And then in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, he said something like, He will take of mine and basically give it to you, show it to you. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 1.3 and then um, another text in Ephesians to show you the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relation to the exalted Redeemer in bringing mediatorial blessings to the souls of God's people. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So here Paul tells us that God the Father is to be praised for three reasons. Because He blessed us in every spiritual blessing, or with every spiritual blessing. He blessed us in the heavenly places. He blessed us in Christ. What does he mean by blessed us with every spiritual blessing and in the heavens? What is a spiritual blessing? You know, something spiritual can be non-material. The opposite of, 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 of something you can touch. Um, something spiritual can be soulish. But something spiritual, especially when Paul uses the, the adjective pneumatike, can be that which is connected to or related to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, that adjective, spiritual, is used 26 times in the New Testament and all but two uses are found in Paul. And I'll assume that most of you know some of the texts like 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul contrasts the spiritual person, person with the natural or soulless person, person and the spiritual person with the fleshly person. In both cases, the spiritual person is the one who knows something of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their soul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 44-46, there's a contrast between the spiritual body that's animated by the Spirit of God and fit for the resurrected and eternal state and the natural or soulish body which is fit for this age alone. So the Holy Spirit makes this body a spiritual body. John Eady commenting on Ephesians 1.3 But in all other passages where, as in this clause, the word is used to signify Christian men or Christian blessings, its ruling reference is plainly to the Holy Spirit. E then cites 11 Pauline texts and concludes, Therefore, the prevailing usage of the New Testament warrants us in saying that these blessings are termed spiritual from their connection with the Holy Spirit. And then Frank Thielman, just in a recent commentary on Ephesians, Spiritual blessings, therefore, are the benefits that come as gracious gifts from the Spirit of God. So what Jesus said was going to happen with reference to him going to the Father, he's not going to leave his disciples orphans. He's going to send the Spirit and the Spirit is going to take the things of Christ and bring them to them. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Commenting on every spiritual blessing, again, Edie continues, the circle is complete. No needed blessing is wanted. Nothing that God has promised or Christ has secured. And those blessings are all in the hand of the Spirit. Christianity is the dispensation of the Spirit. And as its graces are inwrought by Him, they are all named spiritual after Him. So God blesses us with what the Spirit of God brings to our souls. 
I already said this. I'm going to say it again. The one and only mediator between God and men is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one and only mediator between the exalted Redeemer and His people is the Holy Spirit. The Son in space and time, in history, on the earth, lives, dies, rises, ascends into heaven. The Spirit takes the things of Christ and He brings them special delivery to our souls. But what about the phrase, in the heavenly places? In the heavenly places. You know what it can't mean, if my interpretation of spiritual blessings is correct. It can't mean that there's something really good for us up in heaven that someday, someday, we're going to be able to experience. This phrase, I think, refers to the dimension of existence in which believers experience spiritual blessings. That comes from Frank Thielman. You've got to think with me a little bit on this one. Heaven is that place where God's presence is manifested intensely. With reference to the intermediate state of man, heaven is that, plus a state of existence qualitatively different than that which is experienced presently on the earth. However, I don't think Paul is reserving the blessings of the heavenly state exclusively for the intermediate or eternal states. Charles Hodge agrees when he says these blessings pertain to that heavenly state into which the believer is introduced. You, some of us, you know where I'm going with this. There's this already not yet paradigm in Paul all over the place. I think it's here. Others think it's here as well. This is best understood in an already not yet eschatological sense. The heavenly realm as a state of existence. And the heavenly realm as a state of existence is the age to come which has eclipsed this age in relation to the sufferings and glory of, of Christ and in relation to the experience of believers by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is a down payment or a pledge of more to come. So, God is to be blessed because He has blessed us by what the Spirit of God brings to our souls. And what He brings to our souls is age-to-come blessings that have eclipsed this age because of the sufferings and glory of Christ. So we get to taste heaven on earth. Lincoln says the heavenly realms in Ephesians are to be seen in the perspective of the age-to-come which has been inaugurated by God raising Christ from the dead and exalting Him to His right hand. The blessings of salvation believers have received from God link them to the heavenly realm. The blessings can be said to be in the heavenly realms, yet they are not viewed as treasure stored up for future appropriation, but as benefits belonging to believers now. Peter T. O'Brien in the heavenly realms is bound up with the divine saving events and is to be understood with an appalling eschatological perspective. In line with the Jewish two-age structure, heaven is seen from the perspective of the age to come, which has now been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. End quote. These blessings are not merely stored up for us in heaven for the future. And these blessings do not stay in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Instead, it is as if heaven, in its semi-eschatological, already not yet state of existence, is brought to the souls of believers by the Holy Spirit upon the exaltation of Christ. The age to come 
has eclipsed this age and believers taste of that world by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the bearer of age to come blessings in this age and in the age to come. And then John 80 concludes, Now the gospel or the mediatorial reign is the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom of, or reign of God is in us or among us. Heaven is brought near to man through Jesus Christ. Those spiritual blessings conferred on us create heaven within us. For wherever the light and love of God's presence are to be enjoyed, there is heaven. If such blessings are the one spirit's in working, that spirit who in God's name takes the things that are Christ's and shows them unto us, then his influence diffuses the atmosphere of heaven around us. And here's my conclusion to Ephesians 1.3. So the Spirit of God brings to the souls of believers the age to come blessings procured by Christ for his people. And he does this in part in this age. But how does he do that? He does it ordinarily through the use of the ordinary means of grace. Which makes the ordinary means of grace, in one sense, extraordinarily important. I have another text I want to go to. Now the preacher's wondering, should he go to it or not? I'm going to it. Because in a few days, I'm flying out of here. And I'm not going to be at the Q&A session tomorrow. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. Another text that shows us how blessings wrought by Christ and the shedding of His blood and the crushing of His body are brought to us after the ascension. Uh, Paul in verse 14 of chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's praying. Mike's preaching on prayer as a means of grace. Paul's praying, From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He, the Father, would grant you, the saints, according to the riches of His glory, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did Adam sin? Yes, he fell short of the glory of God. He didn't attain to something that God made for him. Christ didn't sin, therefore he attained to that glory. And we get glimpses of glory now. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice Paul's the specific essence of Paul's request here, or prayer, is that God would grant them to be strengthened with power, which means to, to fortify, to invigorate with strength. Paul's praying that God would give the Ephesians infused invigoration. And prayer is a means whereby this power, this invigoration, comes from heaven to souls. Prayer is a means of grace. But notice that there's a divine mediator in our text. And it's not the Lord Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. To be strengthened with power through His Spirit or by means of the Spirit. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to invigorate Christians or to infuse them with power. John Eady, he has free access to man's spirit to move it as he may. And it is his peculiar function in the scheme of mercy to apply to the heart the spiritual blessings provided by Christ. He shall take of mine, Jesus said. The Son of God is the mediator between God and man. 
The Spirit of God is the mediator between the exalted Redeemer and His people. Notice he wants the Spirit of God to strengthen these people in their soul, in the inner man. The Spirit of God, through prayer, does something to the souls of of Christ's loved ones, dear ones. God, through prayer, tinkers with our hearts. Something happens when God blesses prayer to the souls of people. Now look at the intended result here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, at first reading you might think, Paul thinks they're lost? He wants them to invite Jesus into their heart so he has a, he has a, he has a home in their heart? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Very interesting that since the Ephesians were already Christians, Christ already dwelt in their heart. Paul prays that they would be strengthened so that Christ might dwell through faith in their hearts, they, having been rooted and grounded in love for Christ. Lincoln comments, the verb indicates that the focus of the prayer request is not on an initial reception of Christ, but on believers' experience of His constant presence. Prayer is a means whereby the Spirit of God brings strength to the souls of God's people in their souls so that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. Therefore, this indwelling of Christ, it has to be a thing of degrees. It's not a constant thing that just sits there like a God wound it up and plopped it into our souls and this dwelling of Christ, this experiential acquaintance with Christ just ticks on and ticks on and ticks on. It's a dynamic thing. And it comes to us through prayer and it's connected to faith as well and it's brought to us by the Holy Spirit from the exalted Redeemer so 1 Corinthians 10.16 along with Ephesians 1.3 and Ephesians 3.16 and 17 give us a clue as to the nature of the Lord's Supper and how the Spirit of God functions in the midst of the Supper in relation to our exalted Redeemer Believers are united to Christ by faith. Faith is a means through which the Spirit of God brings to the souls of believers the benefits of union with Christ. I think we all agree on those things. In one sense, those are just really basic. But I think, obviously, foundational because it's the Word of God. Now, much more briefly, I want to go to the Confession and the the Catechism. And before I do that, I want Arden to tell me What's the latest I can go? 9.30. Thank you. (laughs) He didn't want to be the one to say that. Because if you say, brother, you're finished, I won't be very encouraged. (laughs) I think it is important, though, okay, to show you that what I've tried to show you from the Scriptures is reflected in the Confession and in the Catechism. The confessional formulation of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace is not based on one biblical text, but upon a complex of texts and doctrines that are all interrelated. The confessional formulation is based on at least the following. The accounts in the Gospels of the institution of the Lord's Supper by Christ prior to his exaltation, which we didn't really deal with. The words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, which are post-ascension, inspired explanatory applications of the doctrines of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper as instituted by Christ during his humiliation. Third, the grace of faith and how it grows and develops more and more into Christ's likeness through the use of means. Fourth, union with Christ 
affected by faith and as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, and fifth, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relation to the exalted Redeemer and bringing mediatorial redemptive benefits to the souls of believers. That's just kind of like a, a review of the overall teaching of the confession. But I want to look at paragraph chapter 30, paragraph 1. Let me read it and make a couple comments. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the night, the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches to the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice in his death Confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bonden pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So there's vertical and horizontal. Three observations. One, the supper confirms the faith of believers and the benefits of Christ's death. The supper tells everyone who has faith in Christ all that he is for sinners, he is for you. Second, the supper is a means through which spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ occurs. This is the language of means of grace. In other words, the confession asserts that something happens during the supper that alters the soul for the better. Okay, so if you take the Lord's Supper and your soul is altered for the worse, something happened wrong, dreadfully wrong. Spiritual nourishment and growth in him. I think that's evident in 1 Corinthians 10.16. Third, the supper is a bond and pledge of communion with Christ. It is God's bond and God's pledge to us. Paragraph 7 of chapter 30. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Two observations. Worthy receivers spiritually receive and feed upon Christ and the benefits of his death in the supper. So there's some sort of spiritual transaction that takes place during the supper. And I think that's clear from 1 Corinthians 10.16 and something that is affected by the Holy Spirit. But another observation on 30 paragraph 7 is the body and blood of Christ are spiritually present to the faith of believers in the supper. And here, here I take body and blood as the benefits coming to us as a result of Christ's death for us. How do the benefits of Christ's death come to us. The benefits of Christ's death come to us ordinarily through the human instrumentality of faith in Christ, union with Christ, and through the divine instrumentality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who utilizes the means of grace as ordained by God. I'm not going to go to the Baptist Catechism 1693. It says basically the same thing and I think it reflects accurately some of the nuances of the nature of the Lord's Supper that I um, tried to cover earlier. I do want to finish with some final thoughts. And I hope um, that these will be helpful to you. The first thing is this. If the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, wherein the Holy Spirit brings to the souls of believers the benefits of Christ's body and blood, then it is more than a memory. It's a memorial meal. It's not only a memorial meal. In the New Testament, someone said, 
In the New Testament period, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, there is no intimation that this meal was to be only a reminder of either a past event or an absent loved one. I hope you can see it by now. What I'm saying is that during the Supper, because it's a means of grace, purchase grace, redemptive grace, sanctifying grace is ushered into your soul. Special delivery through means from Christ by the Holy Spirit for your good. It's more than a memory. A second final thought is this. If the Lord's Supper is a means of grace wherein the Holy Spirit brings to the souls of believers the benefits of Christ's body and blood and, as a result, souls are nourished, then it seems to me that we ought to think seriously about at least two things. The first thing I think this calls us to think about is the spiritual climate or corporate attitude with which we partake. Should the supper be like a Protestant confessional? Should the supper be like a funeral procession for an absent loved one? Should the supper be a celebration? We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Some of the churches probably use that language. Now, you don't mean you're going to have party hats and whistles and all those things. But I hope you don't mean as well we're going to have a, the semblance of a Protestant confessional and it's going to be like a funeral procession for an absent loved one. Should it be a reward for a good week? You know, assuming you pass the test of 1 Corinthians 11, which, by the way, that examine yourself there, it's not to see if you read your Bible all week. It's to see if you're sinning against brothers and sisters in the church. Read the context. That's what it is. I was trained, you have to see, did you read your Bible? Did you click on the computer the wrong way? Did you swear? Did you flip somebody off when you drove? Or whatever it was. And if you did, you failed the test. And you left somber. And there was grace in heaven stored up for you, eager to come down through the means of grace, left there. Or is it a means of grace for believing sinners? And though seriousness is certainly appropriate, Ought there to be at least a modicum of joy because we are feasting upon Christ, further tasting that the Lord is good and being helped along as pilgrims in a foreign land? I think it ought to be something like that. So I'm exhorting the pastors to set a climate that is less, way less introspective and much more Christospective. Something else I think this leads us to think a little about is the frequency of the supper. Is that door unlocked? (laughs) If I had a wireless mic, I'd go over there right now. No, seriously, isn't it worth at least thinking about? Okay, there's no Bible command that says, Thou shalt take the Lord's Supper X amount of times per year, per month, per week, whatever. Okay? But we should think about this. And it is interesting that Paul did say as often as you eat, not as seldom, as one of my friends apparently said, as you eat. But let's think about this. I know that the New Testament nowhere commands weekly communion. But neither does the New Testament command weekly singing. 
<laughs> I'm not saying we shouldn't sing weekly. Just stating facts. We believe in weekly corporate singing by the church because we believe it is necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, and rightly so. But if we think about singing a little, singing is an element of public worship. It can be repeated, conducted more than once, and it ought to be done at least on the Lord's Day when the church gathers. But we also believe that the Lord's Supper is an element of public worship, and it is repeatable, unlike baptism, although, according to Fred, we can grab our brothers and sisters by their baptism and shake them up and remind them of who they are. But it's repeatable, and it ought to be conducted on the Lord's Day, at least ordinarily. But how many Lord's Days per year? We're not told. How many Lord's Days per month? We're not told. The early church apparently celebrated the Supper weekly. It looks like that in the book of Acts. If you read it without 21st century lens, it's not a command. Just a narrative in the book of Acts, just stating what they did. Are there theological reasons why they did what they did? I think that's one of the things I'll let you think through. The Didache in chapter 14, paragraph 1 says, On the Lord's own day, first late 1st century, early 2nd century post-apostolic doc- document, on the Lord's own day, I wonder what day that was, gather together and break bread and give thanks. So, apparently, the early Christians worshipped uh, every Lord's Day and they broke bread every Lord's Day. And you read some of the uh, historians of that era and they'll say, or even contemporary historians writing about that era, they'll say that it looks like the climax of the worship service for the early church was the Eucharist. And you have to ask yourself, why did they do that? Don't they know it's going to become too familiar? Or maybe there's theological reasons why they connected the Lord's Supper with the Lord's own day. Maybe there's some conceptual, theological overlap there that they were basing their practice on. And apparently the second, early, late first century and early second century church had church services in various size homes. Some of them were quite large. There's rich people. Paul wrote about the rich people. They had homes with uh, terraces that were large enough for up to 200 people sometime. So their house churches weren't, you know, three people, four people, six people. Sometimes they could have dozens and dozens of people. And um, they would have unbelievers were allowed in. Non-baptized people. That's what they viewed as unbelievers. Um, were allowed in to a certain point. And then, because they hadn't read up on how to be attractive and accommodating to the lost, all the unbaptized were excused, and the brethren feasted on Christ together. There's probably theological reasons why they did that. So, I just throw that out there for everybody to think about. And I didn't say anything about using wine. Third... A third final thought. The final thoughts are going to run out pretty soon. The Lord's Supper has links with the past. The Lord's Supper has links with the present. And the Lord's Supper has links with the future. And we need to make sure we're highlighting each when we take the Lord's Supper. Let me work through that real quick. The Supper is clearly linked with the past. Do this in remembrance of me. 
The supper is also linked to the present. This is my body. The cup of blessing which we are blessing, is it not? Yes, it is. Presently, a communion of the body of the blood of Christ. So it's linked with the past. It's linked with present communion. But it's also linked with the future. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay? So the Lord's Supper is connected with the past, it's connected with the present, it's connected to the future. Something else that peculiarly belongs to the exalted Lord Jesus is connected to the past and connected to the present and connected to the future. They called it the Lord's own day. These connections with the past, present, and future provide conceptual links between the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day. Like the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day looks back to redemption accomplished. The Lord's Supper looks to His death, the Lord's Day to His resurrection. Like the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day is a celebration of redemption historically accomplished and presently applied. We have present communion with Christ because He rose from the dead and ushered in the age to come which eclipses this age in His kingdom which is among us or in us. And like the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day is a down payment of the future. It is a pledge of the age to come. Christ's resurrection on the first Lord's Day inaugurated the overlapping of the ages. And since we commune with our Lord Jesus, who is in heaven in his age to come glorified humanity, and receive age to come blessings at the Supper by the ministry of the Spirit, the Lord's Supper, like the Lord's Day, is a pledge of more glory to come. And you put those things together and somehow, someway, not in the same words necessarily every time you take the Lord's Supper, if you leave one of those out, I think we're cheating our people. We just meditate only and exclusively on its connection to the past. You tend to think, like when I was a Roman Catholic, it didn't mean anything. He's dead. Every, every week I came to serve Mass as an altar boy. He's dead up there. Okay? And we need to remind ourselves that he's not, he's having been dead. Okay? He's living and He's exalted. And He's not absent and distant. His Spirit, He didn't leave us as orphans. He comes in the Spirit. And this is just a down payment, a pledge of more to come. Amen. My final thought is this. I'll close with something my friend Steve Weaver wrote about William Kiffin, a particular Baptist in the 17th century. While arguing for the priority of baptism before the Lord's Supper and the life of the believer, Kiffin describes baptism as the sacrament of spiritual birth and the Lord's Supper as the sacrament of spiritual nourishment or growth by which believers are spiritually fed. May we come to a new and fresh appreciation for and experience of Christ in the supper as a means of grace. Let's pray. Father, unless you bless the preaching of your word, unless you bless means, unless you bless the supper, and when we partake as congregations, we pray, we use that means of grace to pray your blessings on the ordinance. Unless you bless all that's been said, um, it was for naught. But we trust that something that was said accurately reflects your word. 
and helped souls. To do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.